Iran, the heat is on to stop the Tehran nuclear missile program forever. Syrian chemical warfare, the doctors on the front line. The two careers are the signs of peace believable after 60 years of war. And is the MOD still failing British veterans? First, President Macron, next, Chancellor Merkel. Both European leaders are making their case to President Trump for keeping the Iran nuclear agreement going. So, what exactly is the Iran agreement? Why is President Trump wanting to get rid of it? And who is the most influential outsider who is not lobbying the president? Well, I'm joined by Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Lucas, where was Iran in their nuclear weapons development, how far had they got before this agreement? Iran, in terms of a nuclear program, not a nuclear weapons program, but they had enriched uranium to 20%, which is a level, for example, for medical isotopes, for other civilian uses, is not a military-grade level. But if Iran developed new nuclear centrifuges, it could potentially have the capability of further enriching uranium to 95%, which is military-grade. Now, analysts can debate whether or not Iran was definitely going to do that, whether Iran was going to have what's called a breakout capability, which is they weren't necessarily going to pursue a military program, but they wanted to have the possibility of one, say, if they were threatened by Israel. But what happened in 2015 is that the 20% uranium was given up by Iran. They not only stopped producing it, they gave up their stocks, and they suspended research and development of new nuclear centrifuges. So even if Iran had the intention of a breakout capability to move to a military program, the Iran deal froze this, effectively blocked this until at least 2025, possibly 2030. It wasn't an easy deal to get, was it? What prompted that agreement? Well, I think from the Iranian side, the key point came in 2013 when after a combination of an economy which was suffering mismanagement, corruption, production difficulties, and then international sanctions closing in, the president, Hassan Rouhani, went to uh, the Supreme Leader and said, look, if we do not talk to these powers, the US, the UK, France, Germany, China, Russia, if we don't talk to them, we face an economic crisis. We indeed possibly face economic collapse. And he presented the Supreme Leader with a large dossier at that point, Ayatollah Khomeini authorized significant discussions. The new government, because Rouhani was more of a centrist than his predecessor, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and his foreign secretary, Mohammad Javed Relief, uh, Zarif, went into serious discussions with the five plus one powers. Still took quite a bit of time, uh, almost two years. But by 2015, I think both sides found a convergence. And that is, on the one hand, Iran could get relief from some sanctions, if not all sanctions, for giving up or pulling back its nuclear program. And for the European powers, for the US, as well as the Chinese and Russia, the idea was is that you could bring Iran back into the international fold, not only on the nuclear issue, but possibly discussing other things, such as the status of the Middle East. Mm, and enter stage right President Trump, who is against this deal. Why is he so against it? First and foremost, because Barack Obama oversaw it. 
I mean, I, that may sound flippant, but the fact is, is that on domestic and foreign policy, if Obama had a breakthrough, Trump wants to roll it back. Beyond that, I don't think Trump has any really detailed knowledge about the Iran nuclear deal, but he'll be tapped into a Washington political culture, which quite often doesn't discuss the specifics, but has sound bites. And when you have certain think tanks, certain right-wing commentators who insist, uh, in fact, falsely, that Iran is violating the deal, or who insist that Iran is on the verge of a nuclear weapons program, which is also untrue, Trump tends to buy into that type of polemic, which means that his immediate reaction will be not to talk about any of the the issues we're talking about, but simply to declare, worst deal ever, I'm the deal maker, I can do better. And yet we have President Macron who's trying to save the deal or at least propose a, a reworked deal. The Iranians obviously are saying they don't want that. Christopher Lee, who has Trump's ear on this? Just go back one step, um, <clears throat> which Scott started to uh, talk about. Remember when this was all happening, uh, we were learning about things called cascades, for example, and then, you know, how many new cascades had been put into the laboratories. And this was part of the, the thing that made a lot of people in the West, certainly newspapers, think that the Iranians were actually the bad guys in everything. It was also the period of a man called Ahmadinejad, who used to appear on this program regularly, and every, he, he couldn't do anything but create the wrong impression as far as the West was concerned, that it was all quite quite evil. We then have another aspect of it which has survived that period. One of the most influential voices in this, <clears throat> if not directly, is Bibi um, Netanyahu, uh, the leader of Israel. Israel has a personal thing uh, a, a physical thing. A, what can he a achieve then ring. when you say he's one of the most influential people? Well, he can talk very well in, in in the U.S. Senate, for example, in the Congress. He can talk very well to the people that talk to the talk to the president, and he can talk to the president. And there is a real fear that uh, that Israel, Israel, remember in its anniversary year being formed in 1948, Israel still feels threatened by. Uh, by Iran, which has publicly mm. said it should be, etc., should be wiped out. There is a much bigger understanding when you have a limited understanding of the reality of what the of what the Iranians are doing. Now, the best thing you can bet here is, is twofold. One is that the outcome of this, there will be perhaps a, <clears throat> a reworked agreement of some form. Now, let's suppose that happens. You and think then, the Iranians <coughs> would sign up to that? They uh, say, we've got the deal we want. We don't want a reworked deal. No, but they might. No, but everybody says that. That's where mm. you start. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's not being cynical, but that is where you start. And especially when you look at the economics of the whole thing and what you can restrict and what you might not restrict. There is another part of it, and that is the way that, that, that uh, President Trump does business. President Trump does business if, uh, sometimes as if he were buying a golf course. <laughs> And eventually he will want to bring everybody publicly into the way he does things. And I think that just as we're anticipating a June, perhaps, uh, meeting in Korea with Kim Jong-un, with, with President Trump, we could even see that happening on a grand scale, which would affect Israel, which could affect Iran as well. And that's bringing more leaders in, in, into this sort of um, grand meeting sales talk that he has.
Professor Scott Lucas, um, a US military commander has <coughs> been quoted saying that they see Iran as the biggest long-term threat to the Middle East. Do you see it that way? Well, I, I think first of all, we need to clarify what that US military statement is. And that's not necessarily that Iran is a nuclear threat to the Middle East in the sense of having nuclear weapons, like, for example, Israel. They see Iran as a threat to the region through other forms of military and political action. One can think, for example, about Iran's key role in propping up the Assad regime in Syria, or Iran's maneuvers as part of a complex battle for influence in Iraq, or Iran's support, for example, of Yemen um, in that civil war, which of course also includes Saudi Arabia. So I, I, I do think they see Iran as part of this battle for power in the Middle East, which could uh, turn in any number of directions, including very violent directions. But I, I don't think that should overshadow, in a way, the immediate issue of the nuclear deal. And the reason for that is, is that one reason why the nuclear deal uh, was important, whatever you thought of the other activities in the Middle East is, it took a very important pawn off the chessboard. And by that, I mean that the bigger issues, such as Assyria, such as Iraq, such as Saudi Arabia versus Iran, were still going to remain, but at least each side couldn't use the nuclear issue and hang it over the other's head to make threats. Now, if you scrap the nuclear deal, you put that pawn back onto the table, you will you will empower Iran's hardliners, because they're not going to immediately say, oh, we were so wrong, we'll talk to the US, we'll talk to Europe about a revised deal. They won't do it. Instead, they will demand even more aggressive Iranian action. And if you scrap that deal, you will empower those. I don't necessarily think everyone in Israel, I think a lot of people in Israel do not want military action against Iran. But you will empower Netanyahu and you will empower hardliners in the US as well. Uh, and on that thought, for the moment, Professor Scott Lewicus will leave it. Thank you for your time today. Now, the UN Special Envoy for Syria is calling for President Bashar al-Assad to halt the suffering of civilians. Ministers from 80 countries have agreed $9 billion in aid, but while the civilian civil war still rages. Stefan de Misura says the fact that Russia and the United States nearly came to blows over Syria's use of chemical weapons should act as a spur to political progress. There was very close, very intense, military-to-military discussions. Bottom line... Neither Russia nor the US want a war over Syria. I can't go into details, but you can see a lot of high diplomatic movement. The crisis was a wake-up call. Well, the conflict has now been going on longer than the Second World War. Stefan de Misturas says President Assad should see sense and start talking because ultimately he will need Western nations to support Syria in the future. You may be trying to have a military victory. But who is going to reconstruct a totally destroyed country? Will it be Russia with its own money, Iran? Or will it be the international community? But then there is a need of a political process. Well, Dr. Ganem Tayara is the director of the Union of Medical Care and Relief Organization, which has medics on the ground in Syria. Good to speak to you today, Dr. Tayara. What do you make of what Stefan de Mistura was saying there? I totally agree with uh, Mr. Demistura, uh, actually. Uh, maybe the regime thinks that they have made some sort of military victory on ground. However, unfortunately, the, the country infrastructure is completely demolished and, and destroyed, you know, and that's on all levels. 
from medical point to um, uh, teaching to any any kind of infrastructure you I mean that, that doesn't exist anymore and therefore really uh, I mean you could make a, a military victory but you're gonna rule country which is completely destroyed and unless you agree to some sort of midterm uh, compromise then the country cannot uh, progress forward you know Yes, you mentioned the medical facilities. It's nearly three weeks since the attack in Douma. Have the medics who were there been able to give evidence to the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons? Well, certainly, the I mean, the, the, there was evidence of use of chemical weapons, and uh, also there was quite a lot of pressure for intimidating the medics who are working on ground. Unfortunately, they were trapped in a track that they were given some sort of reassurance that uh, people who want to leave Duma, they are welcome to do so, and people who stay, that's fine, nobody will, will, will question them. Unfortunately, that was not the case, and uh, some of the medics who stayed in Duma were uh, pressurized quite badly by the regime and even forced to give some sort of statement that there was no chemical weapons used. However, those who are not out of Duma uh, have got full statement and evidence as well. Mm, Dr. Tayara, um, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this conversation. Christopher? And just <clears throat> just to think, thinking uh, what Stephen de Mistura was, was saying about that, um, that Syria, that President Assad, if he survives, will need the Western countries. Think of this, and it's something we've just been talking about, for example. Uh, in the long term, Russia cannot maintain a reconstruction program that will be necessary. Most certainly, Russia hasn't got it to 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 establish an economic revival um, and for long-term economic prospects. Now, we were just talking about Iran. One of the reasons that Iran wants some sort of arrangement over nuclear weapons is... Is, is the idea that it was imposing sanctions upon them. Sanctions mean a reduced capability to maintain a war uh, for a long period, but also to act as an ally. And don't forget that Iran is on, we'll call it, on the side of, uh, of President Assad. They won't have the money, they won't have the resources, and they won't be able to get the money unless, and, uh, and resources unless unless they come to some future future agreement. So the two main allies, Russia and, and Iran, won't be able to help in the long term. Who can help in the long term? United States, United Kingdom, France, yes. etc. Dr. Tayara, um, we heard this $9 billion of aid being pledged to Syria. How do you react to that kind of statement, that kind of news? Uh, certainly, I mean, the, the, as I've said, the country is, is completely destroyed, and probably uh, this is a, a good news in a way. However, uh, that might sound a bit too rude. In the past, uh, the contribution from the United Nations and WHO and everything else were uh, given directly to the uh, to, to, to the Red Crescent, Syrian Red Crescent, which is basically controlled by the regime and uh, uh, very little went to the needy area. What we hope is this sort of uh, money, uh, or the pot of money, is to be really deployed in the needy area and through the proper channel. Uh, we do have some uh, sort of meeting from time to time with politicians, whether in the in, in UK or in EU, 
And there was some sort of talk about reconstruction of Syria. And mm. I think that would be a fundamental mistake is to try to infuse any money now in reconstructing Syria when there is no uh, political settlement. And uh, to to us or to me or to, to, to the Syrian people in general, you know, it will be just like a reward to the regime who been, uh, you know, everybody knows what he's been doing for the last six, seven years. Now, I'm not uh, taking any side here, so don't get me wrong. I don't want to classify myself as an opposition because I'm not. But certainly uh, the, the regime has got the upper hand on, on destroying the country. And the Syrian people in general has never been a, a, a fanatic people. It's a very liberal country. And what you see in Syria is not the real Syrian people. Dr. Ghanem Tayara, thank you for your time today. That's Dr. Ghanem Tayara, Director of the Union of Medical Care and Relief Organisations. Still to come, does the government understand the weaknesses in veteran support? Now, tomorrow, the presidents of the two Koreas meet to end the Korean War, which took place 60 years ago, when President Kim from the North and President Moon from the South meet. It will be seen in the Korean Peninsula as the biggest and most important event since the end of the war in 1953. And the forecast is it will lead to an even bigger political summit, perhaps as early as June, with President Kim and President Trump declaring that part of Asia a nuclear-free zone. Well, Dr Hazel Smith from the Centre of Korean Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies joins me now. She's author of North Korea, Markets and Military Rule. Dr Smith, good to speak to you. How big is this meeting tomorrow in political terms? It's um, very significant. It's different from the other two summits that we saw between North and South, one in 2001 and 2007. Uh, the first one was a breakthrough in 2000 because uh, the two sides had never got together at the presidential level since the Korean War, which killed millions of people in 50 to 53. The second one was a continuation of that. But what's different about this one is that the U.S. are on board. The last two summits, the U.S. were very hesitant uh, in uh, in terms of what they thought might be the outcomes. They were, they were not very optimistic about these outcomes. That's one difference. Uh, President Trump is, as your, uh, as your listeners know, uh, planned to meet with the North Koreans. Of course, lots of things can happen between now and, and then, but the plan is such that uh, he, he will talk to the North Koreans. And secondly, what's different about this one is the internal dynamics within North Korea. In this summit, we already know who's going to be joining Kim Jong-un, and that's senior military leaders, as well as uh, Kim Jong-un's party-related colleagues. In previous summits, there was always discussion within North Korea between the defense and uh, establishments and the foreign policy establishments as to how far to go with negotiating with the United States. There was a segment within North Korea on both uh, occasions uh, which thought they shouldn't have to do anything, have anything to do with the United States, in much the same way as there are splits within the United States on how to deal with North Korea. This time, it looks like the military and the party establishment, uh, at least uh, in terms of what is going to be visible at the summit, are on board with the leadership's view about negotiating with South Korea. And to keep everyone on board, what does the North Korean leader need to take back with him? 
uh, it's obviously North Korea is not a democracy. So on the surface, uh, what comes out of the meeting, however it uh, materializes in substance, will be portrayed in North Korea as a success. In practice, because the North Korean leader will also continue to work with other elite families, they will be looking for, all of them, some form of deal going forward where their security, not just the national security of the country in terms of defense uh, and uh, commitment that, or, or a feeling of security that they're not going to be invaded or, or there's not going to be any form of military intervention. What they're aiming for is physical and personal security of the individuals in charge of North Korea right now so that in any future deal, they do not feel that they will be taken to the International Court of Justice for human rights abuses uh, or that there will be some form of sponsorship of opposition to them within North Korea. So they're looking uh, for regime security and by that we mean security for the top families within the current uh, it's, setup. It's just, just one small, uh, not, not entirely a small point, and the, the biggest difference between this uh, uh, meeting tomorrow and then perhaps uh, with Mr. Trump is than other meetings is that North Korea is now a nuclear power and that settles the minds of a lot of people uh, that the outcomes matter more than most. Mm. Well, the 2007 meeting, of course, North Korea had already had a nuclear test, and in fact that was in the context of uh, the United States' uh, vehement decision uh, that it would not negotiate uh, with the North Koreans, although of course it did in the end, in the Bush, Bush administration, the second Bush administration, uh, did in fact move towards negotiations with North Korea, partly because the nuclear program had started and they were hoping to head it off at the, at the pass. Clearly, the nuclear agenda is going to be centre uh, to, to stage. But, but again, even the 2000 summit, uh, the nuclear, uh, the nuclear issue, the very first summit, mm. the nuclear issue is not far off the agenda because there had already been the, what we now call in historic terms the 1993-94 first nuclear crisis. And although there was a, an agreement at that time, the Geneva Agreement between the United States and North Korea okay. to... Uh, freeze North Korea's nuclear capacity. In fact, that was not treaty-based, and and as we as we all know now, uh, that collapsed in 2002-2003. Right. So we've been here before, uh, but uh, hopefully that the diplomatic alliances are more aligned uh, in 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 order to have a common pursuit uh, to denuclearisation de and to a permanent peace regime All right, and, in the future. And there we must leave it for the moment. Professor Hazel Smith, thank you very much for your time today. Now, the Defence Secretary has announced the creation of a new veterans unit to tackle the problems faced by former servicemen and women. Gavin Williamson says it will have input from across all government departments to deal with veterans' homelessness, loneliness, debt problems and mental health issues. The government has described it as groundbreaking. Well, earlier I spoke to the Minister for Defence, People and Veterans, Tobias Elwood. Well, we just had a successful meeting of the Veterans Board and uh, this has been put together because the support for veterans isn't just the Ministry of Defence. We now have a transition process, so uh, when you put your hand up and say, I want to move back into civilian life, uh, there's a process to look after you. 
But ultimately, it's, uh, there's lots of departments uh, involved, and that's why the Veterans Board across Whitehall uh, helps to coordinate to make sure that support is there. I should stress, though, that you know, the absolute majority of uh, people make the transition from being in the military uh, back into society without any problems at all. 90% are either in uh, a job or back in education um, within six months. Of course, there are a few through no fault of their own that require support, and that's where the Veterans Board uh, comes together to provide that support. And this new Veterans Strategy that we're putting together is actually going to help us promote what veterans are all about, what offering they have to society. And this is actually quite exciting because I think we're quite reserved in this country and we need to celebrate more, you know, like we see in the United States, of what a, a veteran can, has done and what they can do with their transferable skills. So how, how will this unit, how will this strategy work and how will it break through where other things haven't already? We've had the Armed Forces Covenant, we've had the Veterans Gateway, people are saying they're just not working. I, well, I'm, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that they, it needs, things need to uh, move forward. The Covenant is the enshrined uh, in, in law the responsibility of uh, nobody to be left behind. And that means that any council needs to make sure that they you know, provide support for housing and so forth, that, that schools are going to provide the places for, uh, for, for the youngsters. It's making sure that uh, we underline that it happens in practice, and that's what the Veterans uh, Board is, uh, is all about. What we need to do is, is actually ensure that companies, businesses, who may not necessarily have connections with the armed forces, are aware of the fantastic skill sets that those leading the armed forces might be able to provide. And that's what work we're doing through the gateway and uh, through the transition process. How much have you talked to veterans about what you're doing? We talk to them all the time. I have meetings on an absolute regular basis with uh, the charities that are in the military. There's over 400 uh, military-facing charities that do an excellent job. Uh, And then we have something called the uh, Career Transition uh, Program, which actually helps uh, those look, looking for jobs when they decide uh, in their armed forces that they want to uh, to move on. Well, that was the Defence Minister, Tobias Elwood. Well, let's hear from Matthew Seward, who is the Assistant Director responsible for Public Affairs and Public Policy at the Royal British Legion. Uh, hello, Matthew. What does Hi. the RBL make of the announcement? Well, it's uh, positive that, uh, that this is an acknowledgement that veterans' issues are not just the responsibility of one government department, but need to involve all of government in ensuring that the pledges under the Armed Forces Covenant that the Minister just referred to are being met. So we look forward to that. I mean, obviously, at the Legion, we've got a lot of experience through our own work providing support to thousands of members of the Armed Forces community all year round, whether that's through our debt and money advice service or our care homes or support for recovery of wounded, injured and sick. And therefore, we look forward to working with the government as their strategy develops and sharing our knowledge of supporting veterans and their Mm. families. How much responsibility do you think the government takes of veterans compared to military charities, charities like your own? Um, Well, obviously, throughout the history of support for veterans, going about 100 years to the First World War, there's always been uh, a sort of a shared responsibility between government and charities where uh, there is a clear clear responsibility for government, and I think that's what's good that this announcement recognises that Uh, There is a primary responsibility on their part, but where charities can provide additional assistance, Mm. where statutory services... Uh, um, And Matthew, have you been consulted so far by the government on on this strategy? 
Um, we have been involved in some discussions with the strategy. We're aware that this is something that they're uh, they're working on, but I think this is obviously this early days. This is the uh, the first major sort of announcement that it's going to be coming. So uh, there's still going to be obviously some work and discussions to do over the over the coming uh, year or so. Do you think it can really make a difference? I've been hearing some cynicisms from some quarters. Well, I mean, obviously, as I said, it's still early days. We obviously, welcome anything that will. Um, benefit the armed forces community and take steps to address their needs. I mean, obviously, we know from our experience working with thousands of veterans and their families every year that the important things to them really are about getting the basics right, about health, housing, finances, you know, employment, accessing military compensation. And those are the sort of things that we would hope would be addressed uh, and prioritised through this strategy. Christopher Lee, it's strange, isn't it, that the basics haven't been got right, as you heard Matthew talking about so far? Well, you can go back to the 19th century. Uh, that's when the idea was that you had you had the military, and between wars, because they were weren't paid between wars, they should be looked after, and they should be looked after at regimental level, perhaps. And it wasn't very great. What happened in the late 20th century, and it was after the after the First World War, that more effort was made to look after people that had suffered not just physical but mental mental problems after the First World War, but it never went on to understand one thing, and that is that the government had to do it, that the Ministry of Defence had to do it, and other departments had to do it, and that's still not successful. And now we must leave it. Matthew Seward from the Royal British Legion, thank you for your time today. That's all we have time for. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments, or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. For me, Kate Chabot, speak to you this time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.